stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. On Thanksgiving weekend in 1985, while many were enjoying the company of family and friends, Mary Ellen McDougall found herself collecting the truck of her husband, who'd just gone missing two nights before. While the police told her he may have just left town on a bender, she knew something was seriously wrong. Neil was habitual and dependable. He was just finalizing the adoption of Mary Ellen's two youngest children. Running off into the night was not in his character. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, we look into the disappearance of Neil McDougall. We will not be using the real names of some of the people who were involved in the case. We will, however, be using pseudonyms such as Al, Doug, and Russell, the same names that were used on the Shedding Light podcast when they examined the case. Your host for this episode of the 519 Podcast is Haley Chang. This is one uh, thing that needs to be it needs to be kept up. It, it can't be let go because, you know, I'm going on 78 and I have spent half Exactly half of my life consumed with this. That was Mary Ellen McDougall. Mary Ellen and Neil were only married for five months when he disappeared. Neil was the most kind-hearted, loving person that I have ever, ever known in my life. Never known a man like him. He was a friend to everybody. He was a family man. He was a son, uh, a wonderful son. He looked after his mom. His mom was a widow. And he had an aunt and an uncle, which was the mother's brother and sister. They never married, but they lived together in a, in a house. Uh, he looked after all three of them. And, you know, he, he was a wonderful husband, always buying me roses, always buying little cards that says, I love you. I would find them everywhere when I come home from work and whatever. And he was such a good worker. He was punctual. And he was always in the same routine. You, you, you could set your clock by him, you know. And this was totally, this him going missing was totally the opposite. Neil had two jobs. He owned a truck for collecting garbage in the four townships surrounding the Durham area. He also worked at the Durham three-way demolition. And it was there that he met the co-worker that might have played a part in his disappearance. Well, he was late getting home. And when he came home, the co-worker, Al, uh, was with him. And they had a few words outside and then the co-worker left and went to Aiton, and Neil came in and had supper. Well, after we were done supper, Neil went to Aiton to see the co-worker again and, and see what had happened was Neil had thousands of dollars invested in a Ponzi scheme, on a pyramid scheme that this co-worker had. And Neil's brother also had thousands of dollars invested. Well, both Neil and his brother both wanted out. They wanted their money back. So Neil had been hounding uh, this co-worker for his money for quite some time. So anyway, Neil left and went to Aiton. Well, Neil never came home that night. On Friday, October 11th, 1985, Neil drove from Durham to Aiton to look for his co-worker. He went to a bar called Blondie's, which was attached to a local hotel at the time. Al? Buddy. Doug was there, and, and Neil asked him, where's Al? And Doug said, he's at my trailer. Neil said, to, Doug, well, take me to your trailer. I want to talk to him. So apparently he was in bed with another woman. Uh, Al was married, but he, he was in bed with another woman at this trailer. So Neil told him, get dressed and come back to the hotel. I'll meet you back at the hotel because I need to talk to you. So Neil went back to the hotel with Doug and... Uh, Stayed there. Well, then it it was that night 
Al did come back to the hotel, and he was with his two buddies. Doug. And Russell. Russell. His wife was playing poker in a poker game. According to statements collected by the police, Neil left the poker game and was last seen leaving Al's residence on Edmund Street in Ayton at 2 a.m. This is Angela Richard from the Shedding Light podcast. From all reports and all accounts, we've been told that Al, the co-worker's wife, maintained for years that Neil showed up to her home twice looking for Al. So Neil didn't show up for work the next day. He didn't come home that night. Neil's mother was getting phone calls because Neil had a garbage pickup business and he started at 5 a.m. And people were calling his mother because she was apparently involved with the business back then and said that he wasn't showing up for his pickups. So she got rather concerned and she called his co-worker, Al, wondering if he knew where Neil was. And he said that the last he heard was that Neil was at Blondie's and that's all he knew. He didn't know anything. On Saturday, Mary Ellen reported Neil missing to the OPP in Mount Forest, but they didn't take her seriously. The following day, Al, the co-worker, called Neil's mother to say that Neil's truck was parked around from around the corner from his house. So Mary Ellen went there to get the truck. Apparently she phoned the police and the police said, just go pick it up. They didn't do anything with it. As far as I know, no forensics were ever done on the truck. The ashtray of the pickup truck was full of cigarette butts. Neil did not smoke and Neil kept a very immaculate vehicle. So there's no way that he would have allowed somebody to fill up a cigarette ashtray overflowing with butts in his pristine truck. The truck was very dirty, like it had been driven all over Hell's Half Acres. The strange circumstances surrounding Neil's truck wasn't enough to spur an immediate police investigation. So it took the police about a week before they brought in the divers and the helicopters and did a foot search about a week later. And uh, I kept looking for him for months, my friends and I. I worked at a full-time at a nursing home, a, a county-run nursing home in Durham at Rockwood Terrace. And uh, after work, I would go looking for him. My friends and I searched every abandoned barn. We looked everywhere. We walked from Ayton north on County Road 3 up to Highway 4. We went from Ayton, County Road 9, east to Highway 6, thinking he may have got hit and he's in a ditch or something. We, When we did this, the search on the ditch, we didn't find anything. We have been searching for him for 38 years, and it does not go away. There's not a day I don't think about him. He's in my mind all the time because he was such a wonderful man. As we've heard on this podcast many times, the first 48 hours are the most crucial in solving a missing persons case. The police dragging their feet in this case heavily weighed down on the chances of finding Neil. Mary Ellen says the OPP did not start investigating several important clues until after a news organization got involved. 
Well, they came up to start interviewing, but the night before they were due to come up, I get a phone call from the OPPs in Mount Forest. Do you still have those cigarette butts? We would like to have them. That was the night before. Well, they came up and they interviewed Dr. Wally, our, our family doctor, and uh, because Neil had had a physical that very day, that Friday, that you know that he went missing that night. And then the police asked them to back off and not do the story. And their reasoning was because they would hinder the investigation. Well, no, it would bring up all the mistakes that they made that they didn't do, you know. After Neil went missing, it would be around the same time, a few months after he went missing, the girl that introduced me to Neil, and uh, she was a good friend of Neil's and a good friend of mine, and she entered, that's how we, we met, and we were inseparable from the night we met. Anyway, she got a phone call from some man saying, do you want to know what happened to Neil? And she said, yes. And he said, meet me at the Cedarville Park on Highway 6. So she phoned me to tell me, I'm on my way down to meet this guy. I said, Sharon, I, I'm worried about you, you know, going alone to meet this guy, because he had told her to come alone. So she says, no, I'm going down and don't tell anybody, she said. I was told not to. Well... I worried about her, so I phoned the OPPs in Mount Forest to say what was going down. And I told them, you know, do not hinder this thing that was going on. Well, what did they do? They just drove right up, and the guy in the big light-colored Lincoln Continental or whatever it was took off. And they never did catch him or get a chance to talk to him. After all of Mary Ellen's searches and the police's eventual help, they were still unable to uncover any evidence leading to Neil's whereabouts. And it wasn't until 1996 when Neil was legally pronounced dead. And through the years, there have been many theories as to what might have happened to Neil. But Mary Ellen believes there's more to what has been officially reported about Neil's case. When I retired from Rockwood Terrace, I was bored silly, so I I did a two-month stint at Walmart. And one night I was on, uh, we were stacking the shelves at night shift, and I was in the lunchroom with this girl from Varney, and I knew her, and it was just her and I in the lunchroom alone. And she said to me, did you know I was in the hotel the night that Neil went missing? And I said, no. Her name is Linda. I said, no. I said, have the police been to talk to you? She said, no, nobody has. So I said, tell me what went on that night. She said she was there with her sister and her father. And Neil came in, and he came over and sat down at their table and, t- and sat there for quite a while talking to her father because they knew each other. And then he got up, and he went over and, and sat on the stool. So I said to her, how many drinks did you see Neil have? She said, I saw him with one beer. If he had two, he could have, but he never had any more than that because Neil was not a drinker. So anyway, I said, what time did Neil leave the hotel? She said he left at 10.30 and went out the back door. And she said when he went out the back door, she saw these guys get up and go out the back door right after him. And she wasn't sure who the guys were at that time, but I know it was Al and his buddies. And I... I know Neil was killed right after that. 
I know Neil was killed around quarter to 11 that night. And I know they, they took his body somewhere. And then I know that they hid his truck in their shed. They had a shed there. And they, that's where they concocted the stories. They made up a story for the cops and everything. And it's nothing but a bunch of lies. But because they said that he didn't leave the hotel till 2 o'clock in the morning, and they kind of insinuated that he was, you know, he was tipsy. Well, I know he, he wasn't. And then they had Al's wife at the time say that Neil came to the house to talk to her and, and left at 2 in the morning, and then they never saw him after that. Well, I know... She knows what's going on, and I think they told her to tell that story. In 2007, the provincial government provided the OPP with extra funding to help solve the many cold cases in Ontario. And it was that year that Neil's case was reopened. They sent down the professional profilers from the OPP in Aurelia down to work on Neil's case. So they interviewed, video interviewed, and did polygraphs on Russell and Doug, but Al kept refusing the polygraph. Three times he refused the polygraph, so they basically told him, you know, we know you did it. You're a number one suspect. And we've known all these years, you know, that they did it. I've spoken with a lot of former investigators on the case, and, you know, they're very, very tight-lipped. But I did get the indication that they felt that... It was a jealousy issue between um, somebody and Neil, that they were jealous of something. So that makes you think of Mrs. K, who was playing cards, mm-hmm. or Al's ex-wife, who was at the house, and Neil went there a couple of times looking for Al. You know, did one of them blow a gasket because, you know, Neil... Neil was an absolute gentleman who opened doors and was full of compliments and just... A ladies' man, if you will, and and these guys weren't. So you know, they could have just been tired of hearing their wives talk about what a wonderful fellow he was, and who knows. That year, the OPP told the media that the police believed they knew what happened, but needed someone to finally talk about what they would only call an event attended by many people after bar closing time the night Neil disappeared. Neil's co-worker Al and his two buddies, Doug and Russell, quickly became the main suspects in the case. The three men, interestingly enough, were seen, I believe it was less than a week after Neil disappeared. They were seen coming out of a back farmer's field where there was a large wooded area. They had flashlights, they had shovels. And when a local farmer happened to see them, They looked very surprised, like deer caught in the headlights. And when asked why they were driving around late at night coming out of this back field, their answer was they were looking for Neil. They did not participate in any of the searches that that happened in the days following. And to this day, you ask anybody in the town of Aiton what happened to Neil McDougall, and they will name those men. And then over the years, there were always rumors that because Al's house was under construction at the time, I believe that they poured concrete in the floor after 
like in the weeks following Neil's disappearance. Um, also at Russell's house, apparently there was concrete being poured. I think it was the Sunday or Monday of the Thanksgiving weekend, which everybody in town suspected that's where Neil was. Two years ago, Please Bring Me Home, a nonprofit organization dedicated to finding missing persons in Canada, got involved. They began searching both the backfields and Alan Russell's former homes. Steve Watson, he's globally known as a GPR guy. So he came with his GPR equipment and we moved a ton of stuff out of the basement of Al's old house. And he, um, you know, ran his little machine back and forth, back and forth over the entire floor. So there was an anomaly that was very interesting under the stairs, but it ended up coming back after the data was analyzed that it was nothing of interest to us. I think it was like metal rebar or something. So also that day, we GPR'd the concrete pad that had been poured at Russell's house. And again, nothing of interest. Since then, this this year, actually, we did some searching, like a grid search with a whole lot of volunteers around one of the areas in the the back farmer's fields and wooded areas. And again, didn't find anything. And we were in the area where Mary Ellen herself had found what looked like a shallow grave. Um, gosh, probably back in the 90s, she found it. But nothing yet, but we're not giving up ever. Nick Oldreeve, the co-founder of Please Bring Me Home, talks about what they are looking for during their search. Digging a hole in a Canadian forest is extremely difficult to even get down six inches. It's one of the most difficult things to do, uh, and especially if you're pressed for time. And by all accounts from witnesses, from when these guys were seen in this area, from how long they were gone when Neil went missing, they would not have had more than an hour to dispose of Neil's body. So in that case, you're looking at a surface dump or you're looking at an area where they had just dumped him and threw stuff over him, like sticks and leaves and whatever. On the theory of a surface dump, then it's not like there would be a lot of soil or refuse over over the bone, because there wasn't in this case, and we knew it was 35 years. So in Neil's case, we're only three years later, It's unless he was buried, um, you're not going to have to dig in the ground, and if he was buried, you, we know what we're looking for in the ground. So you're looking for quite a deep depression in the ground um, if somebody was buried there. And you're looking for something that's irregular with the, with the ground around it, um, if that's the case, if he was buried. We were looking at a surface dump, though. Normally, Please Bring Me Home doesn't get involved in the criminal aspects of the case. Their main goal is to bring the person home. However, so much of this case is tied to the three people involved. Nick is hoping that information surrounding these three individuals will reveal where Neil is located. In Neil's case, it's important that we recognize who did it because following their footsteps around the time that Neil went missing is extremely important. Where did they go? Where did they frequent after Neil went missing? Who were people that they used to be married with, who were people they used to be friends with. These are the people we want to talk to. 
And the biggest thing is at the end of the day, it's very likely they have told somebody something over the years that they are no longer aligned with. And we need those people to come forward. I don't believe these three individuals have a bone in their body of remorse that thinks that it's the right thing to do to just say where he is. So we're not depending on these three. We're depending on their stupidity that they likely told somebody over the years. And um, we need that info. We need to know where he is. We need, we need some information. We do try and have conversations with these people and educate them on the importance of coming forward. We believe you did it. We believe that you're aware of the consequences for what you did. And the sooner you come forward with an information, the better, and give them that opportunity. And if they don't take that, then we put pressure on. We do things like this. We communicate with a lot of their friends and family and them and, um, you know, searching places they used to live at. So it becomes obvious to them that we believe they did it. In July 2016, police announced a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of a person or people responsible for the disappearance of Neil. Please Bring Me Home is hoping that the reward will encourage someone who knows something to step up or for one of the three men to admit to the crime and take a deal. Circumstances change, loyalties change, friendships change. And, you know, the reason people keep secrets is typically to protect themselves or their friends. Mm -hmm. And I think somebody might be getting tired of protecting their friend and being, you know, under scrutiny all these years. So somebody's going to crack. We know somebody's going to crack. These men have been suspects for a reason. And if they are truly innocent of any wrongdoing, then they should just speak up and explain <laughs> what they think happened. If all of them, when asked, will say that they heard Neil moved out west, that he just picked up and went out west, left everything behind, left his pickup truck, didn't take his credit cards or any money, has never accessed his bank account yet. So to me, you know, that's diverting people's attention. I feel pretty confident that they're guilty of something and maybe it was maybe it was an accident, but these three guys are not getting any younger and you know, do they not want the opportunity now to explain what happened as opposed to their children and their families finding out years down the road what they were guilty of and they have no chance to explain themselves you know like time is ticking i just want to implore these guys to finally say what happened to neil it's been 38 years we just want to find him and bring him home to his family and one of these three guys needs to do the right thing you know ideally two out of these three guys go to jail and one person takes a deal says, I don't want to go down like this. Go take a deal and go tell law enforcement what really happened and where Neil is. I think Matthew Knopper, one of our co-founders, said it, uh, and I, I don't know where he got the quote from, but tell your truth before somebody tells it for you. So, and I do think in Neil's case, that time is getting shorter and shorter for these three individuals uh, and their freedom. Almost 38 years have passed since Neil's disappearance, and more years may go by before we have the answers. But those involved in the case are confident that these answers will come. 
a new tip, a successful grid search, or a frayed relationship leading to a confession. This case is not over, and Mary Ellen McDougall has not given up hope. Don't keep this quiet. Keep pestering these guys. Keep, keep after them. One of them is going to break, you know. Keep after them. Don't let this die. You know, these people that have gone missing that were killed, you know, it's so worth it, you know, to solve their case and, and give the family closure. It's, it's just because we never get over it. Yeah. Never. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written by Patrick Magermans and Haley Cheng. It was hosted by Haley Cheng. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.